Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Geek Rant, episode 271, Three Easy Payments, recorded February 4th, 2017, and brought to you by Element OP Productions, elementop.com. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the only place on the internet where geeks rant. That's right. It doesn't happen anywhere else. Only here. My name is Mark, sometimes known as the Sultan of the Soapbox Cockerel. And joining me this week, as always, are your two stalwart co-hosts, Seth, the Gooey Kit Anderson, and Miles, the Aussie Engineer. Aussie Engineer. I'm sticking with that word. I'm trying to make it work. Uh, wake him. Hi, gentlemen. Hello, Mark, and welcome, Element OPI Faithful. We surprised you and snuck up early this week. Yeah. One word. Priceless. That's it. That's all I've got okay. to say. All right. Um, so, yeah, what Seth is referring to is we're recording on Saturday rather than our typical Sunday because tomorrow I've heard there's some uh, sort of sporting event, some sports ball game of some sort going on. Um, and so we won't be recording tomorrow. And it's apparently the entire United States versus a couple of places <laughs> in New England. Uh, <laughs> if you believe Not that. again. <laughs> Yes, it's uh um it's really um most of the country who wants Brady to lose and a few Falcons fans. That's kind of how that works. Right. Um, no no inflate uh, being, this year. Uh so far, not yet. Uh being here uh in Atlanta, it it is obviously the talk of the town and uh Fairweather fans coming out of nowhere. People who haven't uh, cared anything about it, and I don't blame them. You know, this is this doesn't happen often. You, this is city pride at this point. Um, go ahead, get on that bandwagon. I, I'm fine with that. Um, and in fact, we have a, a new uh, project launching on Monday, and somebody was like, "What moron decided to launch this the day after the Super Bowl?" And I thought, "What difference does it make?" I mean, maybe I'm just not understanding. Or is it? Is the whole city going to be out until four o'clock in the morning celebrating and therefore if, can't come to work? If the Falcons win, you better believe that's what'll happen. But if they do and they can't come to work, well, they're a bunch of morons. You go to work. You know, it doesn't matter who wins a game. You go to work. Hey, if you get a safe space and a week off of classes for an election that didn't go your <laughs> way, you ought to at least get one day when it's something you truly care about. Yeah, this is the time when uh, people actually come to work with a hangover, unlike after the election. <laughs> yeah what's uh uh did you see the uh not my groundhog hashtag that made me laugh <laughs> this week um we don't accept the groundhog's permission i didn't vote for that ground uh per, not permission but decision i didn't vote for the groundhog not my groundhog uh but the official uh groundhog in punksy punsatani pennsylvania did see his shadow therefore there will be six more weeks of winter or if you live in the south there might be a total of six days of winter if you string them all together Wow, no one ever told that guy about climate change, huh? <laughs> <laughs> um, and so uh, that's that's it. My the the reason we're recording early is that I've got a big old pot of chili uh, cooking as we speak because it's always better the second day. And uh, we're going to be uh, having hosting a little little get together. I don't I don't want to call it a party, but it is a it is a get together um, of people who enjoy commercials. And some who like football. So uh, we hope uh, your weekend goes however you would like it to go. And I'll just leave it at that. Unless so, you're a uh, Patriots fan, we hope you're disappointed. <laughs> um, my prediction right now uh, is that it's going to be uh, a high-scoring game. Uh, it's not super high. 30s. I don't think they'll hit 40. And I think that the Patriots win by a little. Like by, by less than, than five points. That's my prediction. Well, high-scoring cool. games, good for the spectators. 
It is. And both of them have uh, relatively uh, powerful defenses, but uh, I just, just my hunch is that those defenses are going to be overmatched on both sides. So what's going on in uh, the great uh, desert uh, land of Arizona? The Mons? golfers are here. It's the uh, <laughs> annual TPC PGA Tour here in Scottsdale. So everywhere you go, you're completely surrounded by golfers um, and all the golfing stuff. It's like you can't go within a mile of the area where they're doing the whole tournament without getting uh, blocked up in traffic or, tra- you know, just it's just horrible. I, I drove, I went to a, I go to a gym, which happened to be fairly close to where the center of the action was. And I went there last night and on the way back, I must have gone past, I would say, eight major road accidents on the freeway. And I traveled a total distance of 1.7 miles. Oh, so you were in Atlanta. <laughs> is that how Atlanta is? Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah, yeah it, it just was, it's manic. Everyone's just running into the back of each other because they're all stopping unexpectedly because somebody else ran into the back of somebody else. And the place is just ground to a halt. Uh, it, every year it happens. Um, if everything follows suit here, I'm not sure if this is true, but, uh, Every year, typically a week or so after the PGA Tour leaves town, then we have a big Harley Davidson motorcycle festival and everyone comes in on bikes and that becomes even more difficult because now you're looking around you as you drive wondering if you're going to hit a motorbike. So it's, uh, yeah, there's a this place gets overrun. And then by the time March is here, everyone leaves and we get, we turn into a desert again. Seth, what he's describing sounds a whole lot like an average first Monday in Canton. Uh, pretty much, and this is first Monday weekend. But um, yeah, it's you know a town of thirty five hundred has swollen to over a hundred thousand before when it was the perfect time of year and temperature and just mass stupidity. And it was it was literally, I mean, traffic was backed up over three miles in every direction to get into Canton. And, um, I remember I was trying to, I I drove the last two miles to get to the church. I am now just to like come up here on the wrong way of the road, going over a hill, knowing nobody was leaving. And, uh, so yeah, that's Canton. It is very, (laughs) very bad. Uh, when first Monday happens this one, because it's, you know, early February, typically the weather's been pretty bad. So this one's not that bad, but there's still a lot of people. Yeah, so f- uh, for the most of you who don't know what I'm talking about, it's a it's a swap meet that started I don't know 50 or 60 years ago. Oh it's no, just a small long, thing, long in the 1800s. Oh, okay, so, yeah, I didn't realize it'd been around that long. And uh, so people get together and and sell their junk and their handmade items and stuff. And over the years, it has ballooned into um, a, a, a mid sized city, really, uh, all uh, on its own. Yes, um, the uh, it is the largest. Uh, flea market in North America. It dates back to like circuit judges and stuff like that who came in once a month and it's the weekend preceding the first Monday. And it's in some ways it's better and in some ways it's worse than it used to be. Uh, it's become less mom and pop stuff and more people making a living going to different flea markets around. But lots of people show up. Uh, you can't like horse trade as much as you could before now people like that's the price I want to pay or that's the price I'm going to take. And you know, negotiation. I'm like, where's the fun in that? So I like flea markets. 
Do you, do you guys yeah. follow a couple of guys out of Dallas called the Game Chasers? You ever heard of those nope, guys? Nope. Uh, they got a huge YouTube following and they're really, they're kind of stars. They, what they do is they go out to flea markets. They started this thing years and years ago and they hunt down old retro video games, like old console games for Nintendos and Sega Genesis and stuff like that. And they try to collect everything. And there are a couple of absolute nut jobs. They're hilarious to watch. They're just a joke. They're kind of middle-aged guys who go around acting like they're 10 years old and have a good time. And it's, it, it's really funny, but it, it's almost like a, a Texas staple because they represent Texas so well in doing this. But now they've, they've become so popular that they travel. Literally, they'll go all over the world. And go to flea markets, swap meets in Europe or Canada, all throughout the US. And uh, I, I believe I might be wrong, but I believe that they've quit their jobs and this is what they do full time. And they hunt down video games, hard to find video games and make uh, general, you know, fools of themselves and capture it on video. And that's how they earn a living. Cool. So, Seth, what is your uh, dirty job you've been up to recently? Well, okay, I found, um, you know, there was an issue, and I've needed to fix it for a while, but I've been too lazy and not caring, uh, where our drain to our house has kind of gotten crushed, and so it drains out into the backyard. And also, during this time, our septic tank has gotten stopped up somehow. So I've been out this week trying to dig up the pipe and, ramming a snake down in it, seeing if I could get it unclean or cleared. And I've got it, I've got a slight little trickle coming up, but it's still more, you know, it still bubbles up out of the top of the ground. And so there's this stinky water in the back. And the reason I let it get so bad is I thought it was just from the drain. And so I got out and until I can fix the drain, I got some pipes and kind of made a thing to get it away from the house and dry out. But then I realized, oh crap, it's the septic tank that is backed up. So I uh, flushed some Ridex down the toilet for the first time this millennium uh, at the beginning of, or whenever I did that Tuesday or Wednesday. And like I say, I got a tiny little trickle, but I still think I'm going to have to bust open the pipe and uh, see if I can find out what's truly stopping it up. You, you, you know, time. as Judy Bloom says, the grass is always greener over the septic tank. <laughs> you don't think it just needs Not emptying. when there's a lake. It, it doesn't just need emptying, right? No, no, because I, whenever I ram the, the snake up, it hits like it won't go any Roots. further. And I'm still a good 10 yards from the septic tank at that point. Ugh. So it may or may not need to be pumped out, but the, there's an also a blockage in the line that needs to be cleared. Well, judging from the age that your house was built and the location, it may be those old clay glazed pipes that have, have collapsed on it. Well, we didn't use that. We used um, okay. like plastic pipes. Well, it was very common back in that time frame to use clay pipes. Uh, I don't know why. I guess they were cheap. Yeah, they probably, but yeah, no, we, we did plastic. And so, you know, they're the big, that big around, mm -hmm. which right. does no good for people on radio. But um, <laughs> um, he's, he's describing a four inch PVC pipe. Yeah, that's probably about it. Yeah. Uh, okay, so we don't have any uh, listener feedback this week, and uh, I'm wondering if maybe there's something wrong with the email because Seth sent one earlier that I haven't gotten yet. So maybe the geek rant at elementopi.com isn't working, but um, as always, the contact us button works, and we just don't have anything this week, and that's okay. 
Um, but this week we're we're continuing our financial February theme. Last week we sort of talked about uh, our personal relationships with money and our quest for financial independence. Uh, and this week we're going to look at uh, debt, um, just as a concept, uh, and talk about it. And I, I suspect we'll have some differing opinions on it, but maybe not. Uh, we'll see. So just some statistics to start with. Uh, these are from the Federal Reserve's most recent report. Uh, Q3 2016 was the most recent I could find, um, and I'm not uh, I'm not going to make any uh, commentary on any of these numbers yet. Just going to say these are the numbers based on uh, from the Federal Reserve for Americans and their relationship with debt. The average American has sixteen thousand dollars in credit card debt, twenty eight thousand dollars in auto loans, and a hundred and seventy two thousand dollar mortgage, along with fifty thousand dollars in student loans. Now. To say that the average American has fifty thousand dollars in student loans, you got to realize that there are a whole lot of Americans that didn't go to college, went to college forty years ago, um, and or went through to college without loans. So that is a misleading number: fifty thousand dollars in student loans across the per capita of three hundred million Americans really probably represents more like three hundred thousand uh, dollars in you know average uh, student loan debt. There's there's no way. I mean. I don't, that's, I can't buy, that's, I can say of the people who have student loans, it could average 50, but there's no way you would average 50 across the entire population. That's, that's not per household, is it? Cause it says household debt statistics. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's possible. I, I was cherry picking these data from a very, uh, long report. So it's possible I got the context wrong. Maybe it is among those with, uh, student loan debt. But I think that number's too low. If that's the case, if the average student loan debt is fifty thousand, that seems awfully low to me. No, because you have people who are in the process of paying it off and have been paying it off for twenty years, and they're only down to twenty or thirty thousand. Hmm. Okay. Uh, and then moving on to the last statistic is uh, the average American has uh, thirteen hundred dollars in interest paid in, in a year on in, on credit card debt. Uh, and again, I, I would say that that, um, that number is misleadingly low because there are a lot of people who don't pay any interest on credit card debts. They pay them off every month or they don't use them at all uh, or they don't have them. Uh, but this this number was particular. It was among credit card holders. So the, that, that particular piece of data was, was uh, um, more specific. But uh, among those in the U.S., who have a credit card, the average interest paid uh, in, a, in a year's time is $1,300 in interest or just over $100 a month in interest. And interesting, this is just something I thought was interesting. More than half the credit card debt in the country is held by those 50 and over. Wow. 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 So any thoughts on those uh, those numbers? Guys? They're bad. <laughs> but, uh we have to break him down, don't we? Uh, yeah. So uh, let's do a little breaking down. So I I broke down. J- these are just my um, things. This is not an official number or anything. But uh, I broke these into three different categories of debt: consumer debt, the credit card, the um, buy now pay later, the layaway in reverse that Seth was talking about last week, um, the medical debt, and I that is a unique thing in. In world history, if not American history, uh, in the last, you know, the last half of 
the last century, probably starting in the 60s, uh, medical debt became a thing. Uh, and I really just don't think it was, or at least not you know, a, a big part of everybody's life uh, before then. But medical debt is one of those things that you need, you need a medical procedure to survive. You don't ask about how you're going to pay for it. You just do it, particularly like in an emergency situation. We talked about this a few weeks ago. If you're messed up uh, on the side of the road, um, the EMS uh, folks will scoop and run, and you will be treated, and you will be patched up, and you will be handed a bill for it. Um, the the consent is implied. When you show up at the hospital unconscious and bleeding, nobody says, are you sure you want to con- consent to this procedure that will cost several thousand dollars? So medical debt has become you know, a, a really big thing, and, and thousands and thousands of people are in debt simply because um, they got sick or because they want to maintain health. And part of that is our aging culture, I'm sure, has a lot to do with it. But I consider that an entirely different uh, class of debt. And the third one is what I call leveraged investments. That's borrowing money for an asset. The mortgage, I would call a leveraged investment. Borrowing money to play the stock market is a leveraged, stupid investment. Uh, but you know, uh, those are the three categories that broadly I came up with. What do you, what do you guys think of that? Just in, in looking at those big numbers up front, uh, do you think that we can put all of those into those categories or was there something I left out? Um, well, if we, I'll, I'll apply a, an angle at it from a business owner's perspective, like how a businessman or woman would see debt uh, because it's a different perspective. Um, the simplest way, I mean, and this is purely from balance sheet accounting perspective, you've got what we would call short-term and long-term liability. So a short-term liability would be, um, you know, you've got a, a bill from the plumber you have to pay or a bill from your gardener or a bill from the mechanic or something, you know, something like that where you know you're going to pay it off in like seven days or maybe 30 at maximum. But you're going to do that. That's short-term. And then you've got long-term debt, which is going to be things that you're either going to have revolving debt like a credit card uh, or it's a mortgage or auto loans or investment in capital equipment, which in the case of a household might be furniture uh, or it could be fixing the roof on the house. Um, student loans would be a long-term debt. Um, so it, timing is important because clearly short-term, you can clear that stuff out quickly. And to count that as debt um, would really be really comes down to what your cash flow is like. If you're making good money every month and you can afford to pay those quick bills out, then it's not really debt. I mean, it is, but it's not. Well, that's a that's a matter of degree, right? Technically, I go into debt at a restaurant every time I sit down to eat because they render service before I pay them. So that is a debt that lasts an hour. Um, you know, and, and the, you know, the gardener, the electric bill, those are the sort of things I, I've never really considered those to be debt because you don't incur the charge unless you have the money to pay for it. Right. But, but they um, are, a uh, if you think in terms of, uh, and again, I'm going to have to think of this from a business angle, which may, maybe that's the angle I can bring to the table here. Um, if you've got a, a, a an enterprise, your house, your life or your business or whatever it might be. It costs a certain amount of money just to run it, and that would be food, shelter, power, insurance, all those things that you know you know are yeah, overhead. Yeah, overhead. Yeah, they're, they're predictable expenses. Before you can attempt to pay any form of debt off, you're going to first have to pay those things, and what's left after paying those things is the capital that you would have 
the cash flow that you would have to affect debt. So what, what that is underscoring is that it's one thing to say, oh, I'll go and borrow a thousand dollars at a payday lender to buy that uh, new suit I need or for that vacation I want to the Bahamas or whatever it might be. But it's not that you can, the, the, the trouble people get into is they think, well, you know, a thousand dollars, what's the big deal? I make four thousand dollars a month. You know, that's what money, I, but you don't. Because that $4,000 a month gets consumed with overhead, and what's left after overhead is the expendable capital that you've got to pay that debt down, meaning the debt takes 10 times longer than you ever expect to pay it off. Right, and to go back to what we were talking about last week, the the concept of a budget, telling your money where to go, is just that thing. You you need to understand whether your enterprise, your home or your business or your country, is cash flow positive or cash flow negative. And you can't know that if you're not keeping track of it. Exactly. Um, and we were talking about college loans, student loans earlier. I would cons- put that in the class of a leveraged invest- investment. People are making an investment um, in their college degree, uh, hoping to that that will pay pay off. But it's the one place where we sort of suspend all the rules of reasonable investing. So if I uh, like, we were t- we were talking about Seth's Bitcoin miner and the amount of money that he would uh, have to put into the initial purchase. And the the amount of overhead, the electricity that he's going to have to pay, and how much is it going to bring back to him over that time? And and we've you know we had these conversations, some recorded, some not. But basically, if it's going to cost him forty dollars a month to make twenty dollars a month, that's not a reasonable investment. That's not a, a smart thing to do. But for some reason, we suspend that reason when we say we'll get a four hundred thousand dollar education for a job that we can expect fifty thousand dollars a year from for the next twenty years. And and for some reason, we seem to be okay with that. And I don't know why that is. Uh, social pressure. I mean, the, the, the pressure is that, well, it, it, okay, that's, that's something that is very noticeable in the United States that maybe wasn't the case 20 years ago outside of the United States. Uh, one thing I noticed when I first came here was that everybody had a degree. And I thought, wow, you people are smart. You people are well-studied. And and I just didn't realize at the time that it was a social norm that you couldn't enter the middle class without one. It was a gate that you couldn't get into. It, it became very obvious to me when I was working for a Fortune 500 as a consultant many years ago, and I happened to be working on projects in the human resources department because I was surrounded by a lot of people who were the gatekeepers of interviews. This was a biotech company, so they typically hired very smart people, but um, if anybody applied there for a job without having, in their particular case, was a master's degree, but uh, most cases a bachelor's was adequate, um, they wouldn't even get an opportunity to be interviewed for anything. It was just a complete, well, that person doesn't even meet the, the minimum standard we can have uh, to allow us to even talk to them. Whether or not that person maybe had experience you know, that was more than needed for the job that they wanted to apply for, it was irrelevant because without that piece of paper, the gate was shut. And uh, that's not always applied internationally the same way. Um, maybe, I, I don't know, maybe it's just the social norm, but if you've got that um, leverage sitting on top of you, carrying around that weight on your shoulder that you've got to have that piece of paper, then you understand how people take advantage of it and sell your $500,000 student loan for something that 
will get you a piece of paper. Yeah, and it's a it's a there's a brand consciousness to educations as well. You know, I can have a Timex or a Rolex. They're both timepieces that do the same job. One is a statement and one is a utility. Uh, and so you can go to either, you know, Letourneau University or uh, Harvard University. And either way, you get the same um, master's or bachelor's or, or doctorate degree. But one is a statement while the other is a utility. And so what you're talking about there is not only do you have to have the utility. We won't let anybody at the door that doesn't have a watch on their wrist. But then there are people who give preferential treatment. Uh, we will give you special attention. We will look at you. We will talk to you if you're wearing a Rolex. But if you're wearing a Timex, even though you check the box, we're not going to talk to you because that is not a brand that we want to associate with. And that brand consciousness has moved into education. So uh, so that now you have uh, not only at the higher education, but even at the high school and, and, and uh, elementary education level there, once a school gets a name, a brand for quality, regardless of the actual merits of any other school, you know, people will go to Harvard or Yale because it's Harvard or Yale, even though they get to get the same degree anywhere else. You can go to MIT and get an engineering degree, just like you can go to Kansas State and get an engineering degree. But for some reason, it's assumed that you're a better engineer if you went to MIT. Mm. Yeah, I mean, as an employer, I'm not sure I'd sign up for that because typically... If I if I hire somebody, I don't care what college it is. If I hire somebody straight out of college, I'm going to be training that person for two years before they're of any great value to me, because their knowledge has no relevance whatsoever to the workplace. They haven't had any experience in the workplace yet, um, and consequently, they're not very valuable. So their degree, they can spend five hundred thousand dollars for it, ain't going to help me as a small business owner. Seth, what are your thoughts? Man, I just, I have a college degree and I'm glad I got a college degree, but college degrees are overrated. And unfortunately, it, we've told that to everybody but the seniors in high school. And we keep telling them, you have to go to college, you have to go to college, you have to go to college. But no skills are taught, you know, um, that are valuable to the workplace. It's like, the one place that my having a college degree for really, really helps is if I apply at a high school or college for employment, then all of a sudden, boom, that's a golden ticket. But anywhere else, they don't care. I mean, maybe if I was 25, they would care if I had a degree. Now they care about my experience and if I can do that job. They don't even really care if I have a college degree. So unfortunately... We have so abused the college experience that we've made it worthless. And um, I'm, I'm talking about the uh, American ecosystem. I'm sure it's probably more valuable in other places, but we've pretty much just bleeped the bleep out of going to college. <laughs> There's not much value left in it anymore. It's just become this drain to keep you from being able to amass any wealth later on because you so over pay for everything for college that you're, you're trapped. Um, well, you know, you, anyway. s you said a really important word there, and it wasn't until I, I realized the context of it that it struck me of how important it was. You was it the first or second bleep? <laughs> no, it was not, not, not a bleep. You used the word ecosystem, 
And I'll tell you why I think that's so important. It's actually the latter part of it. It's about system. Everything that we're looking at here in terms of debt is based on a a cost to participate in a system, right? So student loans is a debt associated with getting a uh, a degree, a qualification to allow you to participate in a system. And there's the education portion of that system which gets you that degree, and then there's the workplace or the career system in which you apply it. And it's the same with the system of uh, credit card debt, the fact that you you know might have a hard time renting a room in a hotel without a credit card. Uh, that's part of the system. It's, it's systematic that we use credit cards. Auto loans, much the same thing. We have to get to work. We have to... We have to travel. We live in a world where we can, we're not isolated within, a, say, a two mile range of where we live anymore. We've, we've got the, uh, the luxury of traveling. But with that comes the obligation to pay for the transport to participate in the system. The one thing about systems, which is interesting, is that if you look, particularly today in, in, in the 21st century in a world of technology, where systems control everything, they control Everything we do, our ability to board an aeroplane, our ability to go to school, uh, get a get a loan, uh, all those things are basically in a computer and it's a system, right? The people who get the greatest advantage out of living in today's 21st century tend to be people who know how to beat the system. And... A perfect example of that would be, and we're talking about money and debt and so on, why is it that uh, organizations such as Goldman Sachs, and I don't want to single anyone out, but just these sort of organizations, can get money from the Federal Reserve at 0% interest or 0.25% or 0.5% or whatever, whereas we consumers are going to have to go and pay 29% for a credit card. Why is that? It's because one organization is controlling a system and the other organization is subject to the system. And it's when you start realizing that within the system, there are rules that we have to work within and that if we just blindly follow through the system, doing exactly the same thing as everybody else, going to the same colleges, getting the same degrees, driving the same cars, buying the same cookie-cutter houses. If we participate in exactly the same repetitive behavior in the system, we become enslaved in exactly the same way to the system, hence your numbers that you're showing in the Federal Reserve Report. It does not surprise me those numbers are so big, considering that we're all acting like lemmings and following the same thing. No one wants to to break free of it. When they do, they're kind of a hero to a point. They're the disruptors or whatever. But that just means there are more people following them into a system of buying a Tesla versus a Chevy. I mean, that's not changing the system. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, and so to to look at that concept of systemhood, uh, one of the things in the uh, the, one of the – I don't know, even know how to describe it. My my initial, my gut reaction was one of the throwaway lines, but it was probably more than that in the system was that part of the reason, uh, according to the Federal Reserve, that debt is increasing as a percentage of GDP 
uh, over uh, any time since the the Great Recession was was the numbers they they were looking at is that the quote cost of living has increased and and the cost of the incomes have not increased to match it so um, uh, it costs more to live but we're not paying people more uh, and I thought that was an interesting out of a relatively um, unbiased uh, report that was an interestingly partisan feeling statement there because it seems to really uh, go against the grain of logic for me because if you artificially or naturally increase um, incomes cost of living must be increased as a result the one feeds the other you cannot increase incomes across the board without increasing the cost of living uh, because you know anybody everybody who pays more for their employees now has to charge more for their product that's just the way it is um, and you know, and you can talk about you know confiscatory profits among the the rich get richer and that sort of thing, but that's the system. The system is nobody voluntarily makes less profit in Q3 than they did in Q2, and so the only way you can make that happen if if you're going to raise all your uh, uh, expenditures on invest on employees, meaning uh, cost, uh, meaning incomes go up, is that you have to raise the cost of products. Therefore, the cost of living goes up. And so my thought there was. Are we using the wrong term? Is it not really cost of living, but cost of lifestyle? There, it's an American system. There's an American lifestyle. And the cost of lifestyle is going up at a rate not commensurate with the cost uh, with the income rate. Well, that's not really true. Unfortunately, l- let's say I give you a 2% raise, but let's say the cost of your government mandated insurance has jumped 15%. All of a sudden, your 2% raise, you have less to bring home because you are now required by law to carry insurance or pay a penalty for that. So therefore, yes, you got paid more money, but you had less to spend because the government demanded a larger chunk of it. So all of a sudden, I've got, you know, the the companies paid me more money because they gave me a raise and therefore bread, gas, everything costs more, but I have less money to spend because I'm forced to overpay for insurance because now I'm not only supporting a government bureaucracy and a medical bureaucracy, but I'm also supporting an insurance bureaucracy out of my money. So all of a sudden I have less to spend, but everything costs more. So I'm further in the hole because I never took the time to build up a nest egg and I was barely getting by. Now my choices are to live a lower standard of life and who wants to do that around their friends or to go into debt to maintain the level I was at. You, you, so while I accept your premise uh, on the surface as a good, uh, solid right-wing conservative, uh, I think that you can't make those numbers match up. Government meddling and cost of, of living aren't so hand in hand as that. Uh, even if you took all the government meddling out, I don't think it represents the, the five to 6% increase in cost of quote unquote cost of living that we see every year. There is some fundamental, um, truth to what Seth's saying though. Uh, and a very good friend of mine, I've, I've lived by this mantra for a long time and I think he's absolutely right. Uh, he told me a long time ago that in his, through his observations, that uh, $1 saved was equal to $3 earned. And, and I think he's right. I mean, he's thinking of it from a, as a businessman would look at a profit and loss statement on a business. If it costs you a certain amount of money to earn money, to generate income, 
even if that income is raised by some external factor, there's so much cost of, as you, you use the term cost of living or cost of lifestyle, I would change that myself to cost of participation. There's a cost to participate in the system, which means the, the cost for you to wear the right clothes to go to the job and have the right car and pay the gas and cover yourself with insurance and registration and, and buy the lunch when you're out. And, you know, that, that cost to be there to earn the money. If you don't have to earn the money because you decrease your expenditure, you, you it, his rationale was a three to one ratio. So one dollar saved was three dollars earned. So the earned money, less the taxes, less the direct costs what you end up in your pocket before you can spend that dollar that you would have saved, it's better to turn it on its head and, and work from the expenses out than it is to worry about it raising and boosting income all the time. I hope that's relevant to what you were saying, Seth. It's just another I angle. Get it. Seth, any thoughts? Well, no. Rebuttal? I mean, comment? You know, it kind of, you know, this sort of ties in. How much do we want to leverage our future, which is what debt is, you're you're leveraging your future to get something now, and sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. But how much do we want to do that to main to achieve an initial standard of living? You know, if I'm not, if I'm having to borrow money because I'm starting out or whatever, then what happens when an emergency comes? Then all of a sudden I've got to borrow more money. But if I chose a much shallower entry point, then I'm able to put money away. Then when something happens, then I, I have a structure to support that, and I don't get blown out of the water to begin with. Yeah, so th- this uh, I'm going to to refrain from mentioning names for to protect the guilty, uh, but people very close to me in my life, uh, I watched them go through this cycle of the the payday cash advance cash store lender people. Um, and there's a system in place there that is designed to rape the the borrower. Um, and so let's say it's me. Um, in fact, for a time it was me. So uh, I got out of that off the uh, uh, hamster wheel very quickly. But let's just say uh, in that situation, I would go, uh, I need $500 for a car repair. And I just have to have it. I, I, I have to have my car because I commute to work, which is another very American thing. Um, and I have to have it. So I go to a cash advance person and I get a signature loan or maybe I give them the the model and serial number of my washing machine as a secured loan and they loan me $500 at 30% interest. That's a high number, but it's not unrealistic. But no, it, that's actually very yeah. low for a payday right. lender. So I go to this uh, person and they say, but they don't tell me 30% interest. It's, it's on the forms. Um, that I, I can read, but they don't tell me that they tell me that you're going to pay this back weekly, uh, with a weekly installment for, for my $500 of, uh, a hundred dollars. Okay. And so a week later I go in there and I don't have a hundred dollars because my life hasn't changed. I didn't have 500 to spare a week ago. I don't have a hundred to spare now. And so I go in there and I say, well, you owe us a hundred dollars or you can take a loan out today uh, against your line of credit for uh, uh, $200. And if you take a loan out today, you don't have to make a payment. So now my my initial $500 loan resets 
and 200 is added onto it. So now I owe them $700, but I don't have to make a payment today. So I go back the next week and I make my payment. I'm good. I found the money. I go back the third week. Uh, and so now of my $700, I've paid a hundred, but I don't have the hundred. And so they say, well, you can either make a payment today of a hundred or you can borrow another 150. And this is the thing that they do. And, and if you're on that, uh, hamster wheel and you can't get off, um, you end up signing away increasingly, uh, high numbers of debt just to not have to make a payment. And meanwhile, they're, you know, taking what they can get from you, knowing that you're never going to pay this loan off. You're either going to be a slave to them for the rest of your life, or they're going to take your stuff from you. And this is the the deal that they make going in. They know this is the contract that the, that you're engaging in, but the the borrower doesn't know that. Or worse yet, the borrower does know that, but doesn't see any way out of it. And so the next time something goes broke, now they already have a relationship with this person, uh, this this entity, this scumbag. So now they're going to go borrow more money. And the payday lenders, they never ask about you know uh, your debts, about what you owe. They just simply say, do you have a paycheck? Do you have enough money coming in to make your minimum payment, regardless of what your other things are? And so I've seen people in my own life go to payday lender B to borrow money to pay payday lender A, because that seemed like the right thing to do for them. Because you can borrow your way out of debt, right? <laughs> if you're in debt, you just borrow your way out. And so I've seen people in my life be indebted to three or more of these sharks just trying to balance, to float money around just to pay the minimums on all of them, plus the credit cards that some, some bank was stupid enough to give them. And so this is a system that was created to take advantage of people with fewer options and, and probably people with a, a lower uh, level of education. I'm not even going to say they're dumb. They're just uneducated. They don't know... Uh, what they're getting themselves into. And this industry, it kills me that it's legal in the U.S., not only legal, but it's a booming business. So as we talk about systems, there, there's the, you know, Goldman Sachs is part of a system, but also Easy Cash Now is part of a system. And they're both essentially the same system, a way to um, extract maximum value from the people in the middle. Yeah, and often they're intertwined. So one becomes a, a, the front to the other. Easy pay cash is probably using financing loans from Goldman Sachs to provide the capitalization that allows them to enact their their uh, their actions. I mean, it's it's not. At what point do you see the, the thing with this stuff is that we all feel horrible about debt, the the downside of it, the uh, entrapment, the obligation. Uh, feeling a lo- loss of freedom, all of those things. Um, but we only have ourselves to blame because most of the time we find ourselves needing that because of decisions that we made well beforehand. And, and and the one thing that is so important is that if you say, yeah, but what if I lose my job? Well, if you have a job and you're generating income and you're not saving for an emergency fund for that predicament, the only person you have to blame is yourself. And if you need to go to the payday lender and you need to participate in their system, knowing how corrupt it is, knowing that it's a predatory system that you're going to lose from, um, you've set yourself up for failure. And you did that the day you had that good job and you were earning money because you decided 
you could take the family out for dinner or you could go down to Best Buy and get the flat screen TV or you could upgrade your car or whatever. Those decisions matter. They matter in the worst case scenario because you never put forward enough security in an emergency fund to get yourself out of that. Um, it's very, very easy to see 2020 in hindsight with this. It is so easy. And the person who points it out, actually, you know, they get branded as, you know, well, you're not supportive. You're not helping. Well, no, but there's sometimes in life we all have to go through what I would call a, a Dr. Phil moment where with somebody has to just say, hey, you're the one responsible. Take ownership of this and don't do it again. And it's very, very hard to accept that sometimes. We don't want to come across as being negative, but as, as we said in the previous show, there's nothing wrong with the word no. It will keep you out of this dangerous place. You know, I saw some friends of mine were in this, you know, pawn shop cycle where there was never enough money at the end of the month, so they would finance to get to the end of the month, so therefore their money didn't last enough the next month. And I was doing pretty good at the time. And so I thought, guys, you're killing yourself here. How much money do you need to get to the end of the month? Let me help you get out of this cycle. And I gave them the money, which was a very stupid thing to do because the only thing that happened was I lost $500. They, they didn't change. They didn't learn. They didn't, they didn't grab hold of the lifeline that was offered to them. It was just crunched underfoot. And then a couple of months later, they're back to the pawn shops again because they didn't learn the lesson. And so I don't know how, I mean, you know, I, it's hard to get in that situation and it's hard to get out, but man, you got to get out because otherwise your entire life is drained away because of a couple of bad decisions you made. There's some dangers in trying to intervene with what would be the natural course of things, though. I mean, yep. you know, think about it. We live... I.e. a big government bailout, for yeah, example? exactly. I mean, look, at our, at our atomic level, if we were... Let's get rid of all the westernization and all the urbanization. Let's go back to being agrarian caveman, right? It's survival of the fittest. And it's unfortunate that we all try to help each other out but if somebody is going to become a lion's lunch by their actions and what you do is try to save them from the lion all the time it's inevitable at some point when you're not looking they'll become the lion's lunch it's the way of the yeah. world it's just the way the world works and we can't look at it and go oh that's disgusting and how dare us let the lion you know if we intervene in that natural causing process we don't necessarily create anything that helps anybody you end up you know uh, killing off all the lions and then everybody who feeds on lions dies off and the whole natural cycle just you know destroyed and it's all because you felt bad for somebody who was about you know who made the the went to the pawn shop to sell their tv or something at some point they have to intercede in their own habits and practices they have to get knowledge they have to get wisdom and they have to get out of that mess, and you can't help them. Unless you can help yeah. pass them to that person who can teach them that, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. what will end up happening is, you know, you'll give them your emergency fund, and then you'll end up lying food. Bingo. Because you spent all of your money to help somebody 
who wasn't in a position to benefit from your help. Right. Yeah, I, I want to refocus a little bit um, uh, and and talk about the the t- classes of debt that we were talking about earlier. Um, Miles made the distinction between the short term and the long term, uh, whereas I I you know consumer versus invested debt. I, I think a simpler way to look at that is you know the the term is revolving debt, uh, debt that cannot be resolved at the end of whatever the cycle is. So in the typical credit card cycle, that's a thirty days. Um, so if you cannot resolve this debt within the term of the cycle and that debt revolves into another cycle, that is a debt that I think we can all agree with uh, is evil. <laughs> if not evil, dumb. And if not dumb, dangerous. Um, you're, you're playing with snakes. And maybe most of the time the snake doesn't bite you, but that doesn't mean you're not playing with snakes. So uh, you know, the in a business, that might be net 10, that might be net 30, that might be net 90. There is a term by which uh, your contractor who is building your new building expects to be paid. And as long as you have the reserves on hand to to settle that debt at the end of the term, then I, th- while that is technically debt, I don't really consider it debt for the purposes of this discussion. That is uh, simply a payment term. And I would say that people who, um, for the purposes of miles, spend everything on a particular visa in a month, and then when that uh, bill comes due, they pay it. Uh, they have resolved that debt. Uh, it no longer revolves. I, again, I, I don't consider that necessarily an evil debt thing. There are people who would disagree with me, and they would say that you're playing with a snake there. Uh, but as long as you have the cash on hand to cover anything outstanding, it's technically, you know, it's not really a debt. It's not a revolving debt. Um, and then these things that uh, that you can't resolve, and and you could look at a mortgage either way. So a mortgage is a very long uh payment term and so you could pay that off over 30 years and you know you there are people who who look at mortgage debt as not really being in the debt category it is a it's a very long-term um leveraged investment uh but you end up paying you know a whole lot more as general math goes you buy your house three times you buy it once, and then you pay for it two more times for interest over the course of a 30-year uh, mortgage. And interestingly enough, the, the interest rates don't matter that much. Between 3 and 12, uh, the, the, the raw numbers end up being about the same. You end up paying for your house roughly three times. It may be 2.8 times or 3.2 times. But you, if, you, if it's a $100,000 house over 30 years, you're going to pay $300,000. Um, that's the basic math of it. And so there are people who would say that's not debt, that doesn't count, or that's a leveraged investment. Um, I have come to believe that uh, there is no good way to look at that because your three hundred, your hundred thousand dollar house at the end of thirty years is rarely worth three hundred thousand um, dollars. So I don't look at it as, as an investment. It's just it's another lifestyle thing. In order to be in this house, this is the deal I have to make. Um, what what do you guys think about that, Miles? How does that fit with your business mind? Well, Real estate's an interesting animal um, because it's it's part of our uh, lowest level need uh, on the on the Maslow hierarchy. It's it's in the shelter department. We all need shelter over our head. Um, it's very noticeable when you live in a climate which might be super cold in the winter or super hot in the summer. Uh, you start realizing that the shelter that you have is part of a, a health. The situation it keeps you alive. You don't die of uh, you know frostbite, or you don't die of uh, heat exhaustion. Um, 
So it, there's a need to have quality shelter and the there's a whole bunch of factors that go with the property that you live in. Uh, it is not an asset. It is purely a liability. Um, the only time the property that you live in becomes an asset is when you've paid it off entirely and then maybe you're 65 years old and you look at, you know, yourself and your wife and you say, maybe we don't need a 3,500 square foot home now. Maybe we want to downsize. So we'll sell the home. We'll spend 40% of what we get on that pro- on that home and buy something smaller that we feel more comfortable with. And we'll save the 60% and put that away towards our retirement. In that instance, that home has become an asset. Let me pause you mm-hmm. right there, though. That that math only works if you didn't spend thirty years paying it out, right? Uh, because the odds are you're never going to get back that full investment. That math only works if you aggressively paid off your mortgage. Correct. Yes, um, I, I should. You're absolutely right. I should state that the mortgage paper you buy, you know, the 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 mortgage document that pays for the title of the property that is written in your name. Uh, that mortgage is important to recognize as being something that suits your uh, ability to pay it and it, that it's competitive. And the interesting thing about that mortgage is the options that you will have to get the mortgage is going to be based on a whole bunch of factors, including things like how well you participated and behaved in the credit system prior. For example, um, you could probably get yourself a 4% mortgage for 30 years on a house right now if you carry a, a credit score, a FICO score of, I don't know, let's say 700 or more. And um, banks move the scales around all the time in terms of what they're willing to lend and how good a debt citizen you have to prove yourself as participating in the system. Um, if you have an 800 FICA, they might give you a super great deal because they want you as a customer because you're low risk. If you have a 500 FICA, they may not even want to talk to you. It depends. Um, there are many banks out there. There are many financial institutions. You can shop around, but you'll typically find that if you have a lower FICO score, you'll pay far more in interest. And that interest payment that is not paying off the principal on that house, the more interest you're paying the more likely you're going to hit that three to four to five times the value of the property over the 30 years. So your participation in the smallest amount of debt, credit cards, auto loans, and so on, if you don't behave yourself, you won't be able to participate in the things that are most important, which would be mortgages and so on. Now, that's looking at it from consumer mortgage, the house you live in, your primary residence. But property also can be used as an investment to generate income. That's probably outside of the scope of what we can talk about today. But I would say that if we're talking about debt as it pertains to an income generating property, we need to look at that in a very, very different. It's not really debt. It's a cost of goods sold or a direct cost associated with the generation of revenue. And you have to look at that based on a simple return on investment type math. I mean, it's very basic stuff. Yeah, but it still falls into, and I want to be careful about this. Uh, if you have, if you rent a uh, buy a house uh, with a mortgage and you put a renter in it and, and the rent rent plus minus your mortgage payment, minus your taxes is generating positive income. You, you can put that on your balance sheet as an asset. Uh, but 
the house itself still goes in that liability column. Uh, yeah, and, the, the mortgage and, to it, the house does, yes. Right. And so it, you, you always have to – people lose sight of that. And I want to make sure that we keep that the, – the, the, the mortgage death pledge, by the way. That's what mortgage means, mort death gauge pledge. It's a French mm. word, death pledge. That death pledge that you put on that house is a liability. The property, the real, the, the uh, you know, in, in, uh, what's the word, improved real uh, property uh, is um, a liability, is an asset, and you have to make sure that that asset, over whatever term you look at, whether it's a two-year term or a 20-year term or a 200-year term, you've got to make sure that the asset always outweighs the liability or you're not as cash flow positive as you think you are. Right. There is a, a very popular technique going around, particularly in um – hate to use the term, but in the millennial generation, I'll say it, uh, called house hacking. And uh, I'm not sure if you've come across this, but the idea being that if you're buying your first home, and whether it's you or you and your and your spouse or girlfriend, wife, whoever, um, and you're living in that home, if you're willing to give up some freedom by allowing you to rent out part of that home to other people, or rather than buying a home, you buy, say, a, a fourplex, and you live in one of the fourplexes, but you rent out the other three, then what you can effectively do is you can break that system by generating enough revenue from renting all the other units out that will not only pay for your unit and effectively allow you to live debt-free while you're enjoying the appreciation of the asset that you hold, hold title to, the building, uh, but sometimes you can come out way ahead of time on that. And that's one of those things that maybe when you're married with kids, it's not practical. But maybe when you're not, it is. So imagine you leave college and you buy a fourplex, live in one, rent out three, positive cash flow. You're paying your own costs. Property value keeps going up. Maybe five years later, you meet the love of your life or whatever, and you decide you're going to go get married. What do you do? You sell the property or you keep it as an income generating uh, a vehicle, but you take the uh, additional uh, revenue generated from the appreciation on the property and you use that as the down payment to your actual primary residence. Um, that technique could take maybe 10, 15 years off a mortgage cycle. Right. There's lots of ways, again, I, I, I come back to Seth's key word, ecosystem. There's, it's a system. Systems are designed, uh, you know, we use system. if we're hunters looking for prey, you're a deer hunter, you're a fisherman, whatever it might be, you set up systems for the prey to fall prey to you. That's why they're prey. The exact same systems are used in business for people to fall prey to that system. If we understand the system as smart geeks and we work out how to, and I, without using the term hack in a negative context, but how you, you, you learn and, and turn the system to an advantage that you win on and you do it early, you financially benefit from the whole thing and you benefit over and over and over again. There's one key part of all of this which is important. Uh, and then I'll let you guys talk because I know I've been yapping about this. But um, when it comes to debt, debt is the ability for you to pay for something you don't own yet out of additional proceeds of what you've earned after your overheads have been paid off. I think that's a simple classification of debt. The thing is, though, if you realize that you, the human being, 
if you sell your time by the hour to another, that is you're an employee of some company or you're a freelancer or you're a contractor or whatever it might be, you measure your time based on how many hours, let's say 2,000 working hours in a year and how many years you physically feel you can you can work and you sell that time to somebody, you will never get that time back. And when you're sitting at the age of 75, 85, whatever it might be, and you're literally in the last few days of your life, and you look back and you realize the value of time at that point, you will realize how irrelevant money is and how relevant time is, as time is the only finite resource we never can generate any more of. And you will protect time more than anything else. And that is, to me, that is the key takeaway from all of this is that anything you do to make a decision for something that you'll go into debt for, you are not only incurring an obligation to some other party that you have to pay at some point in time, but you are, you are doing yourself such a disservice because you're taking away those hours like you don't care. And trust me, if you're 60-something years old dying of cancer and you're looking at life from that angle, those hours really mean something. So don't throw them away. Don't, don't, don't dismiss them as irrelevant. They are critical, finite resources, and every decision we make to avoid debt empowers us to get more out of those hours and live a fuller life. I wanted to hit on that uh, um, system thing. Uh, I probably should have let that last statement hang in the air a little longer, uh, <laughs> but I didn't. Um, you you said, what I heard you say essentially, and I'm paraphrasing, is that you can choose to step out of a system if, if you understand the system well enough. Uh, I would counter that and say you can't step out of a system, but you can choose the system in which you operate. Uh, whatever you do, you're always going to be in somebody's system, even if it's a system of your own creating. Uh, but we, we are not islands. We are not individuals. We all live, you know, in the, in the U S we live in, in, under that governmental system in, in England, they live under that governmental system. And, and both of those countries are, are bound by an economic and political system. So you can never not be in a system, but you can choose not to hang out in the lower echelons of the system. You can elevate yourself, you know, like a, um, you can make that quantum leap from one uh, energe- energy state to another. It's, it takes a lot, takes a lot of energy to do it, but you can do it. And um, that's a, a thing that I, I think when we try to be uh, encouraging and optimistic to people, we tell them you can, you can get yourself out of this rat race. Um, we need to also make sure that they understand that you're not – getting out of the system, you're simply choosing to operate within a different system. And, you know, and I just came up with that analogy, but the, the, the quantum leap, the moving from one uh, uh, energetic orbit to another is really, that's how it is. It takes a, a lot of energy to move from one state to another. It's not easy. It doesn't just happen automatically. And the, the lower state is always pulling you back. If you don't maintain that energy, you're always looking to fall back down to that lower quantum state. 
um, and and re- to release that energy. And there are people who will feed on that energy uh, uh, from you. So it's incumbent upon you, as Miles is talking about, to, to guard your time. Uh, you have to choose where your energy goes, and you have to make sure that you're putting it in the right place and maintaining it in the right place so that you can move up from one quantum level to another. Uh, I just really went both geek and finance there. Uh, Seth, what are your thoughts on that? Um, don't really disagree with anything you're saying, but you know, the thing is, I, I heard it put this way. You can work for your money or you can make your money work for you. The the way you work for your money is you overextend yourself because you know, you pig out too much and you want the latest um, text and you want the brand new iPhone seven plus rather than getting the iPhone five that can do everything you and more than you need. Um, you know, you want the brand new car because, you know, you can't get the heated leather seats on the one that's two years old. Uh, so in that case, you're always working for your money to pay off the checks that you wrote when there wasn't enough money in the bank, or you can take the time and, you know, eat ramen noodles and wear a shop at Goodwill until you've got your money working for you. I mean, you know, it's great when you have money invested that earns you money that you don't have to work for anymore. Now that money is out there working for you. And you've if you work enough and you sacrifice enough, then you get your money working for you. And then you're working for you. And you've got twice the amount of success rather than you're working for money and your creditors are taking your money. So it's it's how do you want to live? Do you want to live ahead or do you want to live behind? Most people choose to live behind. But if we would stop and wait six months, just take a six-month break from the buying everything you don't need, get everything paid off, and get ahead. I noticed whenever I got my credit score up, all of a sudden I could negotiate and say, I don't want to pay that price. I want to pay a lower price. I don't want a debt interest rate. I want a lower interest rate. I'm not going to finance my car for seven years. You're a moron. And, but because I took the time and built my credit score up and I, I was so far in debt that I realized I can't afford to do anything, but eat and drive back and forth to work. And so I had nothing because I went to paying off everything. And all of a sudden all I looked up and wow, almost all my debts are gone now. And all of a sudden I'm able to get 0% when I buy a car, which was a big deal for me, you know, when I'm able to negotiate and say, I, I don't want to pay that price. How about, you know, and they go, oh, wow, you know, you you could buy your car on your credit card. That's uh, I think we can lower the rate and compete with that. So take the time and make your money work for you. You know, start small. If you save pennies, eventually those pennies turn into dollars and then those dollars turn into more dollars. And then all of a sudden you have money coming in that you don't have to work for. And that's when you can begin to enjoy your life. And there's sort of opposing forces there. You, you, you can, you can pause your lifestyle or you can increase your work or you can do both. Right. Right. So if you're working for what you've got or, uh, and nothing more then a simple way to do that is to work more. Come home from your 40-hour-a-week office job and spend another 20 hours a week delivering pizzas. That's a thing that you can do. It's going to suck, but you can do it. Or, you know, live on half of the money that you bring in. It's going to suck, but you can do it. 
or somewhere in between. Live on 70% of the money that you bring in and work your job. Uh, but there's no way to do this that doesn't suck. And if you're not willing to to put out the effort, you're always going to be on that lowest energy state, which, by the way, sucks. But you've just gotten so used to it, you don't notice it anymore. Yep. You said before, Mark, about the breaking free of the system and the costs associated with doing that. Um, that's something I've always been really fascinated with. I, I, I just love hearing from people who are doing atypical things and breaking out of systems and not being a, a regular participant, but maybe they're building their own house rather than having paying somebody to build it for them. Or they're, um, you know, they bought a, a, an allotment of land somewhere in the middle of Idaho and they're building out there because they don't want to live in a city. That's just their choice. Or they choose, choose to homeschool their kids or they, there's all these different ways of doing it. I mean, I know guys who live in Acapulco, Mexico, who are part of the, uh, anarcho capitalist community who, um, a loving life down there doing some amazing things because they chose to break free of a, uh, political system for the most part and create their own sort of free state unto themselves. Um, there is amazing stories, but every one of those stories comes with costs, costs they incur every minute of the day as they are going against the grain of everywhere else and everybody else. Um, to bring it back to pure geekdom, what the true cost is, Linux is a perfect example of that. Linux is one of those things that doesn't cost you anything. But the the cost of entry is a willingness of knowledge to learn what you're doing and that things are not going to be as simple as just put the CD in, press, you know, set up and you're done. It's not going to be that simple. It's going to be complicated. You're going to be dealing with being against the grain of everybody else. But at the end of the day, you won't have something that's costing you money over and over and over again. You're going to swap your um, a willingness to have a high threshold of pain for the, not the, the cost that isn't going to be ongoing as you have to pay for each new version of that operating system going forward. That, that exact same mentality could apply in mortgages and in real estate and in auto loans and in health insurance and everything else or in where you live in the planet. Um, you have the freedom to make those choices. But per your statement, all of those freedoms comes with a cost. And if you don't understand and be reasonable about the cost, you will probably end up paying two times what you thought you were saving to get yourself out of that and back into the regular system again. So, Seth, you had some uh, some things here, your uh, uh, continuum of debt. You, you sort of listed things uh, in order of respectability. Uh, did you want to talk about that? Well, I just, I mean, we... Because all debt, you know, like the original, the, the theme, which didn't seem to materialize was, is debt good or bad? And so th there's certain, there's certain one end of the debt spectrum. You have your payday lenders who you write them a $150 check and, you know, and then hopefully you can cash it when you get paid. Everybody agrees that, you know, that's a very poor way to live and you need to do something to get out of that. Then a step up in respectability are credit cards with the, you know, and, you know, usually the rates aren't 20, 25%. Now they're 10 or 12, which is not good, but not as bad. But if the choice is put it on your credit card or, you know, rent a car for a week, 
because yours is in the shop, you know, that might be better. And then you go up from that personal loans. They usually have a lower interest rate than credit cards. You have a fixed amount you're going to pay. You know, you might can pay them off early. Um, you have special cases of loans, um, car loans, which, you know, a lot of people think is bad. Uh, student loans, not the best kind of debt, but there are worse. The interest you pay on your debt is tax deductible. So, you know, granted, it's not a dollar for dollar, but it's better than putting paying for your college on your credit card. At least if it's a student loan, you get some tax breaks there. A home mortgage, that's a loan that if you do that, then it will allow you to itemize your taxes and you'll be able to save with charitable contributions and other things that you wouldn't be able to. So not the best loan because again, you're not saving dollars for dollars, but whenever you go to buy a house, there's so much more than the interest rate and the amount it costs. There's the location. There's, do you actually like the place? And you know, when you move out an apartment, you don't get any money back. When you sell your house, you get part of the money you paid in it back. And so that's, and then another debt that everybody and their dog seems to run to is getting that refund anticipation loan when they do their taxes. They'll pay $30 because they want their refund in a day or two versus two weeks with direct deposit. If you know, and then they think, but I got my money today. No, you lost 30 or 40 or $50. <laughs> To because you couldn't wait for two weeks, you had to spend your money now versus let it set in your let it get to your bank and save that forty dollars. And you know, and then there's other type of loans, business loans, where you're you are buying an asset. You know, hey, I think I can sell that for a hundred dollars. I'm going to spend fifty dollars now, and then it might cost me some in interest. But then when I sell it, I've made money. So in that case, hey, you you took a chance. You know, you took a risk. So all debt is not created equal. There, there's some that everybody would say is bad. And then there's, of course, if your Dave Ramsey debt is a four letter word and you should, you should roast in the fires of all eternity for <laughs> going into it. Uh, and while that is a good rule of thumb is don't go into debt. If you know what you're doing, there are cases where it's not a bad thing, I think. Well, I, I, I addressed that uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I made the statement, and I stand by it. Uh, I can't I can't talk to your experience or anything else, but I can say in my life, I've never made a good decision that involved debt. I just haven't. So I have made the decision to avoid debt. Um, the exception to that is, you know, I'm in a house I could never afford without a mortgage. Right. Um, so I've allowed myself a personal exception there. But uh, just for, for my own personal uh, well-being, I, I can't think clearly when debt is an option. Oh, oh uh, I can't. You know, <laughs> uh, well, it just, you know, it's, it's just, it's me. Uh, and I'm not saying that's the way, way it is for everybody. But if I, if I have that easy out, I tend to take it. Just a quick story. Um, 1994, I'm a newlywed. Um, and my wife and I opened a joint checking account and the bank offered us a, an overdraft assurance of $500 on that joint checking account. Uh, overdraft insurance is basically a, a loan that you haven't taken out yet. And so you can bounce a check. Uh, and if the check bounces for 37 cents, they pull a hundred dollars. They loan you a hundred dollars at certain amount of interest. Lots of people have that. Um, but in, in those early days, you know, I was much younger then. Um, 
I, within a week, had spent that overdraft as a loan. Uh, I went to, uh, we were outfitting our new uh, home together, and I went to Radio Shack and bought a home theater system with money I couldn't afford, wrote a check I knew was going to bounce because I had the the overdraft insurance. Now, you could chalk that up to the youthful exuberance of a 22-year-old, uh, but I'm still that same person in many ways. And so if I give myself that option, if I tell myself I can borrow you know, uh, $20,000 uh, to do home improvements and pay that back over time, what I end up doing is having a $20,000 debt and an improved house and and still am not saving the money. Whereas if I tell myself I can't fix my leaky roof until I've saved the money, if I set that rule for myself, I will be more disciplined. The discipline goes away in my own life when I have that easy out of debt. Um, so uh, the, the the is debt evil, is debt good? It's all about what you do with it, right? And I've learned that uh, much like an alcoholic can't uh, be around and can't even, you know, uh, deal with a small amount of alcohol because that's a trigger for him. For me in my life, debt is a trigger and a little bit of debt will lead me quickly into a three day bender of debt. Well, let, let me tell you where I think it's not always evil. Um, I saw a very, in, I'm going to try and find a link to this and post it in the show notes so you can share it. But I saw a, a documentary, I think it was on YouTube of some kids who had just come out of college. So I guess they were probably like 23, 22, 23. And they decided to go to, I believe it was Guatemala, and live with uh, a group of uh, just indigenous people who lived in the jungles um, to experience what life was like in their world. And it was the most amazing story. They, they were there, I believe, for 90 days. And they had to live on a dollar a day because that's all of the, the village there was, that's what they lived on. And that dollar a day, that there's the challenge was, could they do it for 90 days? It was so interesting to see how they adjusted themselves and their thinking to accommodate that. You'd think it'd be impossible to do it, but this is what the, the local villagers do. They live on a dollar a day. So what they have to do is they have to grow their own food out of you know in in the uh, they grow their own crops they hope that there isn't some major rains and mudslides that wipes their crops out or they don't eat um, they can't afford education they have all of these issues that don't ever let them get ahead so when we think about oh i don't know if i can pay this month's bills or whatever think about them <laughs> they're living out of a dollar a day and they're worried about whether the rain's going to come and wipe away their ability to eat for them and their family. Well, the interesting thing that happened as I was studying this sort of day-to-day lifestyle that they were going through was that these uh, students realized that they could protect the village if they were able to purchase some form of like food storage, um, a refrigerator, a, a cooler, something like that, where they could take the crops when they were being harvested and store them so in the case where they had a problem with the weather, they weren't going to lose their crops all the time. But that meant that they had to come up with something like, I don't know, $100 to buy the appropriate level of storage stuff where, you know, in a village that doesn't have any power. They needed solar and they need all that sort of thing. Um, and all of that costs money. Well, when you're making a dollar a day, you can't get $100 
But you can see the, the problem here. If you're losing your crops on an average of once every, say, 60 days, then you can't afford not to have the cooler. How do you get the cooler? Well, you've got to go into debt. And that's what the village did. The village got smart. They pulled together as a community, as a collective, and realized they had common need. And if they all could contribute 20 cents of every day's income that they were making to a common pool, they could collectively buy this storage and they could eat without interruption. And that's what they did. And as a result, the village grew. And as the village grew, they started to be able to not focus all of their time on having to harvest and reharvest all the time. They could spend their time sending their kids to a school and getting them educated. And the education came back because the kids became doctors and nurses and accountants and lawyers and brought that money back to the village and pulled the village out of poverty. Debt is good if it's used right. But if debt becomes the be-all and end-all of everything, it is the most evil double-edged sword you'll ever have because it will slice you apart. But when needed, it's a very, very valuable tool. But, like, you know, you, you've got to learn to live without it in order to appreciate it, and you have to constantly remember that life does not have to be surrounded with it. And, and that, that's my message. I don't think it's always evil. It has a role. But you have to use it very carefully. Yeah, but, I mean, come on, Miles. We're talking about America here. Who is going to help their neighbor do anything like that? I mean, you know, if you live in the suburb, try to get two neighbors to agree that one of them maxes out, like, their broadband with the biggest thing and then just runs a cable over to the other house and they split it. Nobody's going to do that because that would involve cooperation. And I want my own. <laughs> I think you've answered your own share. point there. <laughs> I th- that's, the, that's the whole thing. There's so much waste because we live in these individual silos and we don't work collectively with others to share our abundance or to get from others' abundance the things we need to equalize. What we do is we uh, uh, we choose not to do that. So what we do is we go to a bank and we let them become the counterparty and everything. And now the bank owns us. And we're back into the world of debt again. Well, you know, you know. So you use that uh, term of, of figuratively. The bank owns us. You don't have to go too far back in future where that was a reality. You know, indentured servitude, um, uh, debtor's prison, where if you didn't pay your debts, you were owned to pay off that debt. Um, it, and I wonder if that if putting that away has actually been a good thing. How different would society be if you had to sell yourself into uh, indentured servitude uh, to, you know, to pay off your new iPhone? Wouldn't wouldn't we decide that we needed less if the cost of it were higher? The the fact that debt is sort of um, accepted and even celebrated, I wonder, I'm I'm asking, I don't know. I I just uh, wonder if society is uh, damaging itself by not um, recognizing the power of indebtedness like we have at other times in our history. Well, you know the old saying, a rose by any other name would smell just as sweet. You know, slavery by any other name is still slavery. And now it's not physical slavery, but we have economic slavery. And 
it's what it is because you you uh, you might not owe the same bank. You owe one bank for your mortgage. You own another bank for your car. You own another ten banks for your credit cards, and then you have all the store stuff. You don't own you don't own crap. You know, you are a prisoner, you know, bring it back to the Bible, the rich rule over the poor and the borrower is servant to the lender. Some translation states say slave, but we don't want to say that because we're Americans and we're free. We're free to pick which prison we want to be in because, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of truth to what you say. We don't want to take, you know, it's like everybody in the block doesn't need a zero turn radius lawnmower that costs $2,000, but yet everybody in the block has one rather than one person buys it and another one mows and they split the cost up like that. But who wants to do that whenever I can own it all? Didn't we, do, didn't we do that when we were college students though? Or when we were kids, we always borrowed something from our friends or we, you know, we, we shared what we had. Um, I remember when the first uh, VCR uh, players came out and, and when I was a kid, they were so expensive. I mean, and you had to pay this enormous amount of money to get video rentals. Um, they were charging like a membership fee and then some ridiculous amount of money to rent a movie. And so what we did, all of my friends, is we all got together and said, well, yeah, we, we all want to watch that movie. So why don't we all chip in a bit of money? And then we'll rent it and we'll do a big social night and we'll all go to somebody's house and we'll watch this movie and we'll make, you know, have a barbecue and get some popcorn and have a beer or whatever. And we'll just have a good time socially and we'll share the cost and the burden for around the community as opposed to all of us go out and buy our own VCR, all of us go out and rent the same movie and we all pay individually 10 times more what it would be when we not only get the opportunity to be social and enjoy it, enjoy it together, but we also won't pay one-tenth of the entire cost. How is that wrong? I mean, I'm sure the M- MPAA would kill me saying this. Exactly. <laughs> that was, that's why it's wrong, because the people who own that movie said it was wrong. Sorry, I broke the system again. <laughs> <laughs> Man, no, uh, the community is a big way to break systems. The power of collective, and I'm, I'm not, I'm not a commie, or I'm not doing that whole thing. I'm just saying that the power of collective bargaining can be applied here in in your own lives. I mean, if you if you know your neighbour and you share a common fence, then how about the two of you work out how to share something across the fence? You don't have to live isolationist. There's no reason to do that. You know, I think that we spend all our time with our heads looking down into a black screen all the time called a phone, and we forget that half of the problems are, are, are about the fact that we're so isolationist. We don't socialize anymore. Um, and yeah. I, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a saint. I, you know, I live in a house with my wife, and we don't go out as much as we should. But, man, I really wish we did more of that stuff. It would be – not only would we have – a far more richer life, but we'd have far less debt. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. I, I feel like it's my job as host to, to find some way to wrap all this up, but I, I, I can't, we, 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 we've developed this infinite regress here of, of saying the same things over and over. And I, and I think that it illustrates, uh, how each of us feel about, about the topic. Um, generally, 
speaking, I think I can speak for everybody when I say that um, debt, the, the the concept of of owning something before you pay for it is is a dangerous um, and uh, a desirable concept. It's something that we all want, and it's something that because we all want, we need to be careful about it. Um, it's not necessarily wrong. It's not necessarily bad, but it has you know no no different than a sharp knife. Uh, you can carve the Thanksgiving turkey with it, or you can carve your thumb off with it. Uh, you just have to be aware of the tool and make sure that you're uh, that you know what you're doing with it. And I think that we as a society do a poor job of educating people on how to use that tool. Uh, you know, we don't, we don't, I, Seth, I don't know about you uh, and Miles, it'd be interesting to hear from you from another country. Uh, I didn't take any finance classes of any kind in high school. Not, I didn't learn how to, to balance a checkbook. I didn't, I didn't learn any, how to, how to do a, a budget, any of that in high school. Um, so I went out into the world completely unprepared to face the economic situation of the world. Uh, what was your situation, Seth? Um, I took uh, a personal finance class in high school because I had a crush on the teacher. So okay. uh, you know, the, it was an elective. It was for an you, elective. So at least you had the option. Yeah, and um, but yeah, I you know, but I didn't really. It, finances should be taught at home, and unfortunately, they are. It's just what's taught is wrong. You know, because mm. people, parents don't know and they're afraid to talk to their kids. And so the kids pick up the worst things the parents do wrong rather than learning about them. So, yeah, it, it wasn't it wasn't a big deal. And the personal like the balancing a checkbook thing, that was only one part of the finance course. So it wasn't even all that in depth. Miles, what about well, you? I had to learn accounting uh, from a proper uh, it, it was a, I think it was called small business accounting, but I did that when I was 15 years old. I took some night classes at a community college to learn it. And the, what the reason was that I had got this crazy business idea that um, somebody put me onto a company in Taiwan. This is going back into about 19, late 70s, I'd say, something like that, who, would, uh, who were printing books. Uh, they were technical books. And um, I could buy these books for pennies on the dollar. And it just so happened there were books that I needed myself. So it was one of those scratch-your-own-itch type things. Anyway, I ended up working out that if I was to send a letter to this uh, to these people in Taiwan who spoke English and uh, were able – and I could order books from them and I could – I think you would send telegraphic transfers back in those days to pay for things – and I could spend $100 to buy some books. Um, what happened was two or three weeks later, a ship arrived with this big box of books. I had to go down to the local customs, and I had to get it out of customs. I had to pay them to get it out of customs. I got all this stuff back, and I worked out that, that I'd bought these books for, I don't know, uh, 50 cents each plus another 20 cents in shipping plus another 20 cents in customs and duty and all that sort of stuff to bring it in. Um, and then I put an ad in the local classifiers to sell these things and I was selling them for like 10 bucks each. And I was still half the price or way less than half the price of the local bookstores that had the exact same books. And when I worked that out and I realized, oh my God, look at the arbitrage here. I could be, you know, I'm, I'm paying a dollar for something I'm going to make 10 on and I could send a, sell a thousand of these. Hey, this kid's making money. Well, 
when I started doing that, I started to have to pay taxes, didn't I? So all of a sudden I had to account for everything. And that's when I realized I didn't know what I was doing with all of this. I didn't know what a ledger was. I didn't know what double entry accounting was. I better learn. So I, I booked myself into a community college class on uh, small business accounting. And I bet the teacher thought that was weird. This 15 year old kid turned up to this class and most of the people in there are probably in their forties or fifties. But I sat there and just quietly learned and learned and learned and worked out how it was. And, uh, I ended up doing my own tax return. Eventually I, it got so bad I had to get an accountant and he taught me so many things that I didn't know. Um, but at the same time was very appreciative of the fact that I would give him everything he needed in an orderly fashion that he could do it. And it didn't cost me as much to do taxes. And that's where it all started for me. Once I started learning that, I, I understood how financial accounting systems work. Guess what I ended up doing? I started writing computer software that were accounting ledgers. I wrote accounting systems for and made good money doing that for a long time because of this 15-year-old kid importing books into the country. You know, it. <laughs> you take what every little thing you do is an opportunity to learn from it. It's an opportunity to make money. It's an opportunity to better yourself. And uh, when you're hungry to learn 15-year-old kid, it's easy to pick that stuff up. You get older, you probably don't want to be as hungry anymore, you know. You think you know it all, but you, you, you don't. <laughs> There's always something new. I want to go and learn pottery. I'll, I'll do that next. I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, so th- that's the difference there. Uh, the financial foundation laid early. Um, the if if there was anything I would take from this is um, you can't start too soon in, in controlling your own financial destiny. Um, so that I'm, I'm just going to uh, wrap it up there because we could probably go on uh, even more about this, but uh, we could talk more and say less. Uh, but uh, I think, uh, I hope that you have, uh, have been inspired to think for yourself as you listen to this podcast, that's, that's what we're about. We're not trying to give you answers. We're trying to inspire you to go and seek answers. Um, are you like me? Are you a financial alcoholic that you, you cannot be, uh, in debt because you can't be trusted with it? Are you like miles? Can you, uh, wisely, uh, um, manage your assets and your liabilities and have a full understanding, uh, of them both? Or are you somewhere in between, uh, like Seth is, uh, who are you? And if you don't know the answer to that question, it's very important that you define that out. Whether you're you're 21 or 71, it's very important that you know who you are uh, in terms of your relationship with money, where you are in the system, and how much energy you have available to to move up a level and to to change your system. So um, let us know what you think. Go to elementop.com, click the Contact Us button at the top of the page, and tell us what you think. Uh, I'm curious to know. Um, you could also dial 559-IMOP and listen. Uh, leave us a voicemail there. That would be great. Uh, or if you just, you know, if you're a famous rich person uh, who wants to tell us how you've done it uh, and you want to come on the show, be our guest. Uh, we'll in- invite you on. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just going to say one more thing. Uh, you get 30 seconds and no more, Miles. Talking to you, Miles. Uh, any any last thoughts uh, uh, for, uh, on this topic, Miles? Um, I did have a thought, you know, but it's gone. It's gone. It'll have to come out next week. So, no, I'll leave okay. it. I'll leave it there. All right, Seth, any final thoughts? Okay. Think of debt like you would a nuclear reactor to provide energy. It can be very good, but if you don't handle it right, it will blow up and you will be uninhabitable for generations to come. (laughs)
Okay. There we go. So, Seth, uh, what is your uh, uh, show closing spectacular this week? I can't say that uh, this will lower my productivity because I'm I'm already all over this, uh, but uh, other people may not be. Yeah, this is a podcast I recently started listening to. It's the way I heard it. If you know um, Paul Harvey's The Rest of the Story, this is um, basically micro doing the rest of the story, but it's the way I heard it, and it's really it's it's the kind of stuff I like, you know, little tidbits of history and, you know, presented in a way you didn't know uh, little things can change the world. So anyway, it's the way I heard it. I don't know if this would make you a um, a worse hire or less. Pre- <laughs> I mean, you know, you could you could just go and I don't know. Anyway, this one might actually help you out around the water cooler. Their five-minute podcast, uh, Mike Rowe calls it uh, podcast for those with an inquiring mind and a short attention span. <laughs> uh, the way I heard it, uh, micro.com slash podcast. Uh, I highly, highly recommend it. I enjoy it. It is entertainment, and if you're not if you're not careful, you may actually learn something along the way. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, I'm just that's it. We're just going to wrap it up right there. Um, I'm sure you had a This Week in History, Seth, but I, I'm not seeing it there. Did I miss that? Oh, there it is. Oh, okay. Tell us. Okay. Because, because I have such a great love for this thing, I have to go ahead and extend the show even farther to tell us about this week in history. Okay. February the 2nd, 1977, the TRS-80 is born. The prototype of the TRS-80 computer is shown to Charles Tandy, the CEO of Tandy Corporation, owner of the Radio Shack chain of stores. He agrees to begin production based on this demonstration and the computer goes on sales in August. TRS stood for Tandy Radio Shack and not short for trash that it later became known as. The relatively inexpensive TRS-80 helped to spur the acceptance of the personal computer in the home. And yes, people, that is two Radio Shack references in a lo- in a row. <laughs> you owe so much of the early days of electronics and computing to Radio Shack. It's not even funny. Yeah, so the original TRS-80, the 80 was 80 lines of, of resolution. Uh, it had an integrated screen, uh, so it was a console like so many computers were back then. The screen was built in uh, and the keyboard was together. Uh, and then the TRS-80 Model 2 came out where you had to supply your own monitor, i.e. television. And then the TRS-80 Model 3 came out, and it was in color, people. Color. <laughs> um, can I, can I, game can changing. I interject a couple of corrections there? Um, the TRS-80, the 80 stands for the Z80 processor that it runs. I know. Yeah. I knew that was wrong, but it was it so good. Six, had a 64 column it. screen, not an 80. <laughs> um, the Model 1 was their small little, you know, set-top thing with a separate monitor. The Model 2 was their business computer with the 8-inch disk drives. The Model 3 was their fusion of the Model 1 with a Model 2 sort of all-in-one thing. The Model 4 was the version of that that went on further than that. And what you're referring to is the TRS-80 color computer. Well, see, I had a TRS-82 and a 3. Oh, you might have had, you probably had the level 2, Model 1 level 2, right? Well, it was was called the TRS-80 Model 2 because that was the name of it. And it was a a gray box that attached to a TV. And then I had the TRS-80 Model 3, uh, which was a beige box, and it was in color. So, uh... Maybe slightly different um, um, nomenclatures for different devices there. But in my world, the TRS-80, the original one, was the one that they had in uh, seventh grade computer math, which is what they called it back then. 
uh, and it was the console unit with the two floppy disks. Uh, and it was labeled t- simply TRS-80. And the one that I later had at home was labeled TRS-80 Model 2 and then TRS-80 Model 3. Uh, so that's why I say I have a great love for those because I have experience with all three of those different things. And I remember the first time um, I got to see at home, we had the tape drive. It wasn't a floppy drive. And the first time I got to school and, and had two five and a quarter inch floppies, that was so unbelievable. You could... You could copy without changing discs. That was that was revolutionary. <laughs> yeah, I, I've got I think somewhere in my collection one of every single one of those, from the model one through to the model sixteen, uh, which is showing my geek cred right there, people. So <laughs> wow. Yeah, so it's interesting that you. Uh, uh, I mean, obviously, you know more about this than I. As I was just a consumer, so um, it was my first. It was must my have first been a computer. There. So it's yeah. yeah. Must have been some difference there between the the labeling, the marketing, market speak, and the actual models themselves. Yeah, I should like wheel them out and put them behind us here. Every model we could go for a history lesson in TRS eighty. I've got them all. <laughs> Ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, I, I did remember after I said it that it wasn't 80 lines of text, but it was so good. I just went with it and you corrected me. I, I figured some email would correct me later, but you saved, saved him the time. Yep. Sorry. No, it's good. It's good to have pedants on board. Um, it saves somebody else the, the trouble of yelling at me. Um, okay. That's it. I'm, I'm, I'm calling it. Um, I enjoyed this show. Let me know if you did, listener. Um, if, if you want us to do more of these sort of things, we need to know. If you don't want us to do any more of these, we need to know. Um, just let us know what you think. com. Click the contact us button. Uh, thanks for hanging out with us for another, what, hour and a half, as always. Um, we, we can't seem to do a short show anymore. Um, we, we appreciate your listening. And if you like the show, tell others about it. If you don't like the show, keep it to yourself. Uh, we'll see you next week because that's it for this episode of The Geek Rant. Mm-hmm.